So with that in mind, we're going to go back to John chapter 9 this morning. And I'm actually going to read this entire narrative. It's 41 verses. It's going to take us a few minutes to get through. But it is an, just a fascinating exchange that takes place after Jesus heals a man who has been born blind. And what I want you to, to watch for, if you're looking on the screen or in your own Bible, what, you, what I would like for you to listen for is the reaction of the religious people of the day. The reaction of the people that in this particular passage are called the Pharisees or the Jews. These are the folks that are the religious elite. They are the ones who say, if you want to know how, if God is vindictive or you want to know what to think of God at all, we'll give you the answer. So what I want you to listen for is how they react to what happens. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Listen to this story. As he passed by, that being Jesus, he saw a man born blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, is God vindictive? He, he, he got, uh, his payment was blindness for something that was, that was sinful and wrong. Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes in the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So I went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said, Go to Siloam and to wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees says, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents, parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he, he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask him, he is of age. So for a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciples, excuse me. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. 
You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does the will of God, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your perfect word. Father, we, we hear imperfect words all week long. They come out of our own mouths. We hear them on the TV. We uh, hear them around the, the water cooler at work and the, in the, the classrooms of the schools we attend in our neighborhoods. Father, the, the words of man are fallible. They're finite. We, we only see a small speck of all that is and was and will be. But you are eternal. You are not bound by time or space. You are not limited by the things by which we are limited. You know and see the beginning from the end. You know the truth from a lie. And you take your knowledge and you take your wisdom and you apply it with your love and your grace and your mercy and you offer us salvation in Jesus. You offer us new life. You offer us sight when we are blind. Father, each one of us needs to hear that message, but we at times can be skeptical, we can doubt, we can be fearful. And so as we, as we look at the reaction this morning, Lord, we look at what happened because of a wrong answer, we pray that we would not stand apart from this passage and, and cast judgment on those uh, about whom uh, the story is told, but rather that we would enter in and that we would see the fallibility of our own hearts and our own minds and our own words and actions that we would confess again that Jesus is Christ, but that also our lives would be changed, would be transformed by the power of your scripture and your word. Lord, what I say this morning is irrelevant. It's just one more person's opinion. It is only your eternal truth that will change our hearts forever. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name, amen. Uh, what I'd like to do this morning is, uh, is kind of hop back through this passage. We're not going to go through it in great detail. You've, you've heard the, uh, the historical account of this day and what happened. Uh, this happens to be shortly before Jesus goes to the cross. What I want to do is look at what happens with a wrong answer. How, how did this story play out in the lives of the people that we read on the, on the pages of Scripture? I want to give you six reactions that folks uh, in this story have, and we're going to work right through them. Don't panic by that number. I think we're going to be here for a couple hours. They're, they're pretty plain. They're probably already coming to your mind even as I speak. Uh, but, the, but the question then needs to be asked, if that can be the way a wrong answer is formulated in one's mind, how does that impact others? And that's what we want to get to by the time we're finished this morning. So in John chapter 9, the first reaction we see to the, to the truth of Jesus, the first reaction we see to the idea that, that God is merciful, he is not vindictive, is a skepticism. If you look at verses 9 through 14, and I've just 
kind of uh, cut and pasted portions of that, you see the neighbors, the people who know him saying, is this not the guy who used to sit and beg? This was the guy that was born blind, right? And some of them say, yeah, sure, that's him. We've known him since he was a little kid. We've known uh, how long he's been around here. Certainly that's him. And others said, well, it can't be. It's just somebody that looks like him. Even though he kept saying, it's me, (laughs) it's me. Can you imagine kind of being around your hometown and having something miraculous happen in your life? And and the people that that know you kind of go, I I think it's you, but I'm a little skeptic about the whole miracle thing. I mean, I'm not sure that I'm buying into this whole, you know, stuff can happen kind of outside the laws of physics. So it might not be you. Think of how frustrating that skepticism may be in the life of, uh, of this person. And, and their reaction is, is kind of tempered with the idea of God doesn't really do that, does he? And in fact, you hear later on, what does the man himself say? You, we've never heard of this since the creation of the world, of someone who is blind receiving their sight. And so the, the neighbors bring the man to the Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees, and they say, you know, you tell us what's right. And as we see, the skepticism continues to unfold. It's the idea of putting God in a box and saying, God works this way, and that's the only way he works, and we're the ones who decide how God works, and we're the ones who, who will give the direction and the, and the course of things, and so God is confined to who we make him. He doesn't act like this. It's a bit of skepticism. My oldest son, Nathan, who lives in, uh, in Kansas City, was, uh, we were talking recently. I'd gone over to visit him, and, and we had played golf, and he had made a new friend in Kansas City who joined us for golf and, and had a real enjoyable day. And, and uh, on the way home, I said, you know, how are you guys doing on getting to know each other? And, and, and uh, does he have any faith? And as Nate uh, and I were talking, Nate said, you know, he, he, he really does believe there's a God and he wants to know more. He, he wants to be uh, spiritual. He sees, he sees that as a longing of his, in his heart. But, you know, he hears this idea of God creating the world and says, well, it just can't work that way. You know, it just, it just, it just can't happen that way. And there's a bit of skepticism. Friends, when you believe that God is watching you and, and, he's, and he's out to get you, the, mira- the miraculous would appear a bit skeptical. But beyond that, not only are they skeptical, but there's a closed-mindedness. Look at verses 15 and 16. So the Pharisees ask him how he had received his sight after he had already told them. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, being Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had a very strict idea of what it meant to be in right relationship with God. And it can all be summed up in this sentence. You're in right relationship with God when you obey the rules. Period, end of paragraph. Now, the Pharisees had a rule book that was like real big. I mean, real big. If you take the law of Moses in the, in the Old Testament, and then you add page after page after page, you'll come up with the Pharisees' rule book. And they said, if you want to be in right standing with God, just do all these things correctly. Clearly, their theology had no room for a person who was hurting and broken physically because there had to be a rule that was broken in order for that to take place because God is vindictive. God will punish you. He will watch you. He will get you when you get it wrong. And there was no room in their thinking for any other idea than that. I think I've told you a story before. When I was in third grade, it was around this time of year. We were going into the Halloween season. 
And, uh, you know, you have a dress-up day where everybody can wear their costume to school and you have a party and you get to drink a lot of Kool-Aid and, and have a lot of sweet snacks and then drive your teacher crazy for the rest of the day because you have a sugar high. And one of the kids came dressed in a devil outfit, you know, with the red and the horns and the tail and the pitchfork. And, and the teacher, I don't know if she was trying to, you know, make sure we weren't scared or whatever, but she said, now we all know there's no devil, right? And this was at Robinson Elementary School over there in Kirkwood in 1960-something. Uh, and, uh, and my hand shot straight up. And I said, no, wait a minute, there is a devil. He's real. And uh, she said, now, Tom, that's, you know, that's not true. And, you know, kind of, kind of moved the, the topic on. There was no room in her mind. Now, she may have been, you know, thinking I, this is not a time to get into a theological discussion with a bunch of eight-year-olds. I thought it was perfect time to have a conversation myself. But there was no room for another idea. I actually knew her a little bit as an adult later on, and there was no room in her mind. To consider that God might actually be gracious. And there might actually be a spiritual battle for her soul, for your soul, for mine. There actually are forces of evil in this world that would seek to destroy the kingdom of God. There's a closed-mindedness that comes out in this passage, which leads to a stubbornness. Uh, They get into this conversation, and they, they are bantering back and forth. And so they ask the man, well, what do you say about Jesus? So, you know, you ask me, I'd say at least he's a prophet. (laughs) You know, I read the Old Testament and look at some of the miraculous things the prophets did. I'm going to at least put him in that category. But the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So they call the parents who had been born blind and ask them the same question. There's a stubbornness here. There's a refusal to accept the plain and simple fact that is right before them. Uh, you, a lot of you have probably seen the movie The Princess Bride, one, one of the great movies of all time. And Vincini is, the, is one of the evil villains in the movie. And Vincini has, has kidnapped Princess Buttercup. And he's worked out the perfect crime. He has the perfect caper and he's going to get away and everything's going to flow smoothly. Well, it doesn't. And the good guy is coming to the rescue and he's gaining on him. And he's, and, and he's really ruining Vincini's plan. And Vincini is just so arrogant, he can't believe that there's something wrong with his plan. So every time the good guy gets kind of like the upper hand, Vincini says, inconceivable. This is inconceivable. And eventually one of his cohorts looks at him and says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. (laughs) And there's a stubbornness on the part of the villain in the story. There's a stubbornness on the part of those who believe that it's a quid pro quo that believe that, that I'm going to earn God's love by my actions and by my duty and by my responsibility, and I refuse to believe that God would actually be merciful to those who are sinful, which leads to not only an attitude, but it leads to an action. It leads to an, an atmosphere of intimidation. The parents answered, we know that he's our son and that he was born blind. <laughs> Thanks, Mom and Dad. <laughs> Appreciate that one. They, you know, they go that far. But how he sees, we don't know. Ask him. And they go on to, and the passage goes on to say, they said these things because they were fearful, because the, the, the teachers of the law, they'd already made up their minds on the subject. If you confess Jesus to be the Christ, if you think that God is actually merciful and gracious and compassionate, you don't get to come to church anymore. Now, I, I said a little earlier, I expect you to come to the congregational meeting tomorrow night, if you remember. I do. But if for some reason you don't show up, we're not going to have a guard at the door next Sunday. <laughs> oh, sorry, you didn't make it. You're out of here. We're not going to do that. Obviously, that sounds foolish. But the decide, that, that's where the Pharisees were. They were intimidating everyone to say, you must believe 
as we believe we are the final authority to the point where a, a husband and wife who had done nothing wrong, they, they hadn't broken any of the rules, they're threatened with being removed from the community of faith because of a wrong answer, which shows the true heart of the religious leaders of that day and that they really loved their own position more than loving the people for whom they were responsible. And so they say, we know, we've decided, we are the final authority, that this man is a sinner. And, and the man who was born blind at least says, you know what, wait a second. Two and two doesn't equal five. <laughs> Something's not right here. And so he engages in this conversation. Well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And then he, he kind of gets after him a little bit, he talks a little bit. So do you want to become his disciples? Now, I think that's actually a great question. I know he was, he was kind of jousting with them a little bit, but I think that's the right question. Do you want to be a disciple of the God who is vindictive? Do you want to be a disciple of the God who is watching every move you make, not for the purpose of helping you grow in faith, not for the purpose of, of showing you his redemptive plan, but so he can get you? Is that the disciple that you want to be, or would you rather be the disciple of one who acknowledges that, yes, you are a sinner, <laughs> Yes, you are a mess. I am a mess. But that's why I'm here. I'm here to provide salvation and grace and mercy. And instead, we end up with, in verses 23 through 29, we end up with this interrogation and this belittling and this mocking, which eventually, in verses 30 through 34, lead to this, to a rejection. And, and they reviled him. They said, You're, you were born in utter sin. Don't you know that God is vindictive? Don't you know that, that you were born blind because you and your parents did something wrong? And you would teach us. They cast him out of the temple. There is uh, a rejection that comes with a condemnation, that comes with a, uh, a verbal abuse and assault on this man. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think it will play into our application in just a couple minutes. But where's the celebration? These are the people that are supposed to know God. Where, where, where's the amazement? Where's the awe? Because what the guy said was right. This doesn't happen every day. In fact, you can't even point to another time in history where people were receiving their sight and the lame were getting up and walking and the dead were being, were being raised back to life. This has never happened before. Is this not a reason to praise God? Is this not a reason to worship and to rejoice because he is a God of healing? He is a God of sight. Where is the Pharisee who grabs the guy and says, you know what, you've been sitting outside the synagogue all these years, um, you know, begging and, and sitting on the street corner not being able to see anything. I want to give you the tour. I want to show you around our church. I want to introduce you to some people, maybe voices you've heard before. I want you to get to know them. Hey, and by the way, tell me, you know, however old this guy is, he's probably in his, in his 20s or 30s. Tell me what it was like to see the sunrise this morning when you've never seen one before. Tell me what it was like actually to look at your mom and dad and, and be able to put a face with a, with a voice. What was that like to, to the, when you literally washed that mud off your eyes and you blinked and you saw that had to be an amazing, where's that conversation? There's no room for it. It can't take place in this context because when we are busy keeping the rules, we have to make sure we keep the rules so we're okay. And anything miraculous that happens to you, well, well that's, that's your deal, not, not mine. I've got to make sure that I'm okay. 
And ultimately, what the, what the Pharisees show is, a, is really a spiritual arrogance. This man's talking with Jesus, and Jesus reveals himself to him. He says, I, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Messiah who's come into the world. And he says, Lord, I believe. And he noticed he changes his name for Jesus. He no longer is calling him a prophet. He's no longer calling him the man Jesus. He now gives him the correct title. Jesus is Lord, and he worships him. And then Jesus makes this statement, not just to this man and not just to the Pharisees around him, but to you and to me this morning. I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Jesus says, in other words, if if you want to know what it means to engage with God, you need to understand your own brokenness. You need to understand that, that you're spiritually blind that you can't heal yourself, that you need a Messiah, you need a Savior. That's the very reason why I have been sent from God. And how do the, do the religious folks respond? Oh, so you're saying we're blind. <laughs> you hear the arrogance? You hear the defensiveness? No room for any other consideration, the stubbornness, the closed-mindedness, the skepticism. Jesus, there's no way we're going to allow you to be right because if you're right, then that means we're not in charge anymore. And they, and they literally are so spiritually arrogant that they scoff at the healer. They mock the one who has been healed and they are completely unaware of their own condition. I want to come back to Princess Bride for a second. Uh, those of you who've seen the movie, Vincini is sitting with the hero and they're in a battle of wits, right? And the hero takes two wine cups and he puts some poison one of the cups he puts it out he says now now we're going to battle and when we decide what you decide what cup you're going to drink and then we'll drink and one of us will be right and one of us will be dead because it's got poison in it and Vincini mocks him and he starts telling him about why he's so dumb and why he's giving everything away and they take their wine and they drink the glass and Vincini's laughing and laughing and laughing right up until the very second where he falls over dead so he drank the poison it was right in front of him all the time and he had the sense to see it. And friends, when you believe that God is a vindictive God, when you believe that you have to watch your every move, it leads you to a spiritual arrogance that may serve you very well right up until the moment when you take your last breath. And then you will be lost. This is not just a story about a theological misunderstanding. This is not just about a wrong answer. It's about understanding that a wrong answer is spiritually disastrous. That the consequences are unthinkable and unimaginable. That people can be crushed in the process. The people that, that I hurt for the most as I read this story is the people who refuse to see what is right before them. The man that was born blind is good to go. He's put his faith in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He's going to the cross for you and me, and he's going to rise again on the third day. The issue is not with him. The issue is with those who refuse to believe in the name of religion and allow their conception and their wrong answer of God to cloud every way they live and think and breathe in the context of the church. We're not talking about people who are skeptical and, and don't believe that Jesus may be the Son of God. If you're here this morning and that's your skepticism, we're, th- we're thrilled you're here. We're excited that you would consider exploring the claims of Jesus within our spiritual family. We're humbled that you would, that you would be here and consider that. I'm talking to those of us, the 21st century American church, warning us that we are not exempt from this attitude. 
We're not exempt from living out this wrong answer, this wrong concept of God. We are also in danger of being self-obsessed and uncaring and arrogant. And we must reflect this morning and make sure that we are in line with Scripture and not with our own presuppositions of God, lest we too fall into the same trap. Helen Keller was asked one time, is there anything worse than being blind? She replied, oh yes, being able to see, but having no vision. I think that is the warning of this passage. You see, a wrong answer about God's grace and God's mercy really leads us to no vision. It leads us to no impact. We, we are consumed with how do we make sure we do the right things and we have no care and concern for others. J.R. Woodard, uh, in a recent book, said that, that disciples of Jesus are to be people that are light givers, dream awakeners, and soul healers. Does that define you and me this morning if we're disciples of Jesus? Have we applied the right answer of Scripture? And, and, and as we begin to wrap up, I want to bring you back to the very first verses in this passage. And, and those are my underlines. They, you won't find underline in your Bible unless you've done that. But the right answer is found in what Jesus says and what Jesus does. The first thing he says is, it is not that this man is sinner or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Friends, what are the works? You read this passage, you read the Gospels, you read the New Testament, you read all of Scripture. What are the works of God? The works of God are redemptive and not punitive for those who trust in him. The works of God are salvation. The works of God are healing. The works of God are merciful for all who will abandon spiritual arrogance and put their faith in him. And then he includes us in the work. He includes us in the opportunity to grow his kingdom. He says, we, not I, he could have said I. There are other places where he, he says, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. But he says, we, disciples, must work the works of him who sent me. What are the works? Mercy and grace, salvation, compassion. To tell lost sinners there is hope. Turn from your spiritual arrogance. Turn from your skepticism. Turn from your closed-mindedness and your stubbornness and receive the grace and the mercy of God. That's the greatest message the world has ever heard, and it's the message to which we are invited to partner and to share with Jesus. And then he says this, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We can only see clearly the right answer when we see it through the lens of Jesus. When we stand in his light, when we stand in his glory, even in the shadow of the cross, we see not only the majesty of God, but we see the mercy of God. That's what our world needs. To be quite honest, I want to say this the right way, because I actually think what we're going to vote on tomorrow night is a really good idea. Kirkwood doesn't need another church building. If you go to where we want to put a building and you draw about a three-mile circle around it, there are plenty of buildings. And, and my next statement is not anything against the folks that are in those buildings and what they're doing. That, I, I got enough to worry about right here. <laughs> but will it be a platform of grace? Will it be a launching pad for mercy and for grace? Or will it be something that's just about us? Will it be that we don't have to set up chairs anymore on Sunday morning? Will it be that 
that our Sunday school classrooms can now, you know, we don't have to, to kind of battle with what's on the walls and how the chairs don't quite fit uh, our kids and, and uh, being a mobile church to, to having a home. And, and trust me, I'm, I'm happy to have a home. I, I, again, I think this is a good idea, but I think we have to remind ourselves very stridently and, and very prayerfully that our future will only be successful if we have the right answer to this question and understand our partnership therein. So as we think about our future as a congregation, and as we think about where God may be leading us, and I, and I think as best I can discern through prayer, he's leading us down this pathway. But I believe it's because he wants to give us a greater influence. I believe it's because I can say uh, with a clear conscience that the elders of this church from day one have been men who have been about the gospel. And the, and the deacons of this church, the men and women who have served as deacons have been about serving this community and beyond this community. We just had another group get back from Joplin last night in a way that shows the grace and compassion and mercy of God. May God keep us from a wrong answer <laughs> that could lead to disastrous results. But on the flip side, may God give us the heart of Jesus, the vision of Jesus, that we can be used by him to bring this right answer of grace and mercy into the world. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this text, this story. Uh, the banter back and forth between this man and the Pharisees is, uh, is fascinating. What people chose to believe or not believe uh, is pretty incredible. Father, it would be easy for us to stand back and, and go, boy, look how those folks got it wrong and then drive home into our neighborhoods and go to our schools and our offices, our places of work tomorrow and, and miss it just as badly as they did. Father, a wrong answer, whether it's articulated or just lived out, <laughs> is disastrous. Father, make us people of grace. Make us people of compassion and mercy that we would point this world not to ourselves, not, not to another building or to another institution, but that we would point people with all the passion and all the spiritual fervor that comes from those who have been redeemed, not because they're good, but because for some miraculous reason, God has opened our blind eyes and allowed us to see. Thank you for your love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Before we sing this morning, before we respond in songs of worship, I want you just to listen to, uh, to Elisa. Uh, the words will be on the screen because I think the, the song she's going to sing as we listen is really our prayer of how God would, would work in our hearts. And then in a minute or two, we'll, we'll join in some other songs with her.
together and sing that.
with us this morning. We're glad to have all of you, see all of you here this morning. Our prayer team is always over there on that side of the room in the front corner. We can pray for you about anything. We would love to do that. I stand by this door. If you're a visitor, I'd love to meet you and uh, welcome you to Green Tree and uh, invite you again to come to lunch with us today. And now receive the Lord's benediction, which I gladly offer to you in his name. May the grace and the mercy and peace 
of Almighty God, who is the light of the world, who has come to redeem, live in us and through us, that we may share him with others. For his glory. Amen. The Lord bless you. Go in peace.